0: the book of Acts. We are in chapter 15. We'll be reading verses 1 through 35. It's a long section and yet you'll see how it all goes together. Chapter 15 of Acts verses 1 through 35. This has been referred to as the council of Jerusalem or the first church council where the church had to meet. They had to consult with one another. Um, Many of the church gatherings of different denominations take their model and take their existence even from what we're going to read today. There was a problem and the solution was to seek the wisdom of the multitude of counselors. They made a decision and they shared it with the churches. So chapter 15 of Acts and hear God's true and eternal word. Verse 1, And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders, about this question. And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, declaring the conversions of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. But there arose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider of this matter. And where there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, you know that how that A good while ago, God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved, even as they. Then all the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets as it is written, after this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which is fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord, and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. And that's from Amos 9, 11, and 12. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world, Wherefore my sentence is, that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them, that they abstain from pollutions of idols, and from fornication, and from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day, Then pleased it the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Namely, Judas, surnamed Barsabas, and Silas, chief men among the brethren. And they wrote letters by them after this manner. The apostles and elders and brethren send greeting unto the brethren which are of the Gentiles in Antioch, in Syria and Cilicia. For as much as we have heard... That certain which went out from us have troubled you with words subverting your souls, saying, ye must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good unto us being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have sent therefore, Judas and Silas who shall also tell you the same things by mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things that ye abstain from meats offered to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication from which if ye keep yourselves ye shall do well. Fare ye well. So when they were dismissed, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the epistle, which when they had read, they rejoiced for the consolation. And Judas and Silas, being prophets also themselves, exhorted the brethren with many words and confirmed them. And after they had tarried there a space, they were let go in peace from the brethren unto the apostles. Notwithstanding, it pleased Silas to abide there still. Paul also in Barnabas continued in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. May God bless the reading of his word and the preaching as well. And dear congregation, we, we return our attention to Acts chapter fifteen, and we hope to consider this, this council of Jerusalem, this first. Council of the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. They they certainly have been in smaller meetings discussing elements of of church um, issues and church matters. But this is the first time that it is to, to this degree and this big. We we hope to consider in this sermon um, these these three different phases. The the problem posed that those are the first few verses, one through five is where we see in Antioch the, the problem being, being set forth, uh, a false teaching being propagated. And then secondly, it leads to the problem being debated, the decision to send men to Jerusalem to go ask the apostles and the elders there for their thoughts of the matter. And then the third point, the solution that is offered I couldn't say, um, I do say the problem posed, the problem debated, and I could say the problem solved. But I I realized that wouldn't be the right um, title because the problem wasn't solved. The problem was debated and a solution was offered. The problem solved would mean that everybody who was teaching false teaching would stop, that they would repent... And then we wouldn't have the letter Paul wrote to the Galatians. But when we read what Paul wrote to the Galatians, it shows that these Pharisees and some of these men, they didn't stop. They didn't agree with what James proposed. They didn't sign, as it were, their name to the letters that was written. And they continued. They continued their false teaching. So the problem wasn't solved, but there was a solution that was offered. And for all who followed it, they were truly following the the will of the Lord. Um, This this message is is one this passage here is one that really provides for you, in many ways, um, three very basic and foundational ways that you can know God's will. If I were to think of a theme that would be very much in terms of an application, making it 100% practical as it were. It would be maybe something like this. How to know God's will. How can you know God's will in your life? Um, This is what we find in this passage. There there are three basic principles that can be applied any moment in your life. um, Any country that you'll be um, living in. Any environment. Whatever level of decision that you have to make. um, Whether it be who you should marry. What job you should take. Um, These foundational elements, um, and especially if we apply it to the very situation, a church issue, there's a debate, there are the divisions. How can we solve these matters? Well, God's Word provides three basic principles that we'll look through during this message. So let's look at our first point, the problem posed. And for each one of these five verses, um, I want to offer four words that kind of summarizes the verse in this little section. There are five verses here that speak of the problem being posed, being, being brought forth. The first verse, verse 1, is, can be summarized in essence, the, the heresy. This is the heresy. Certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. And the reason I have the freedom to call this a heresy and not an error or, or just a, a, a mistaken doctrine is because, and, and this is important for us to understand, not every error in theology is as bad as what we would call a heresy. A heresy is when the error literally causes men and women who follow in that way, in essence, to not be saved. It is a way of condemnation. It is so wrong that Jesus is no longer the Savior, so there can no longer be true saved people who really believe and who really follow these precepts. To believe that you must be circumcised after the manner of Moses or else you cannot be saved is in essence saying that Christ is not sufficient, number one. And secondly, they were literally proposing, and this is what's dangerous about a heresy, it is, it is very deceptive. And people might not gather this, this very crucial problem. These men were literally saying, There is something that you and I can do and effect as a human, as a, a person. I can actually do something that will contribute to my salvation. Because that's what circumcision was. It, it, was an, it was an act that would be exterior. It would need maybe other people to enact it. But it's something you can do. It's, 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 it's doable. You don't need the help of the Spirit to say some words or to receive this sign. You can just do it. And when they were saying that you need that and believe in Jesus, they were literally saying, yes, Jesus did a lot of things. He did the most foundational things. Without His dying on the cross, you can't be saved. But without circumcision, you can't be saved either. And who is it that does that? Well, it would be you And so you have a hand in your salvation. And Jesus is no longer sufficient. There's no supremacy of Christ in that religion. See, it's a different religion. That's why Paul told the Galatians, it is another gospel. It is not the gospel. And what did he say about those who teach that? Let them be condemned. He said that twice. Let them be anathema, condemned. Why? Because they were teaching something that would condemn others. Everybody who would bow to that false teaching could not be saved because they would actually be saying that I have Jesus and I have my works and now I'm saved. No, if that's what you believe, there is no salvation. So that's why our first word is heresy. This is, this is what we're up against. Not just a minor false teaching. Not just a matter of, is this okay or is that okay? No, it's a matter of truth or falsehood. Heresy was entering the church. See, certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren. And this is what they said. You need Christ and you need circumcision or else you can't be saved. It's in our second verse... The word that can summarize what happens in verse 2 is the word counsel. There's the heresy that leads to the desire for counsel. To gather counsel from God wise men, from godly men. And when they were doing this, in verse 2, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissensions, it says it was determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain of the others should go up to Jerusalem and the apostles and elders about this question. They were obeying scripture because we find many verses, especially in Proverbs, that speak of How important the multitude of counsel is. Let me read a few. Proverbs 13.10 Only by pride cometh contention. But with the well advised is wisdom. The well advised. See, it would be you being well advised. You don't just go to one person for advice. You go to a second, to a third. Until you can really determine that this is being well advised. Proverbs 15.22, without counsel, purposes are disappointed, but in the multitude of counselors, they are established. The multitude of counsel is also not one or two people. It implies many, maybe you don't even know your count anymore because you're getting counsel from so many people. Proverbs twenty four six for by the counsel for by wise counsel thou shalt make thy war and in multitude of counselors there is safety. Counsel is so necessary that we read this in Proverbs eleven fourteen where no counsel is the people fall but in the multitude of counselors there is safety. So, verse one is about the heresy. Verse two is about the counsel, and verse three. And four, what happens there is the report. Um, Look what happens in verse 3. And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. So those two verses can be summarized with that word, report. They went... Visiting all these churches, giving the report of that whole first missionary journey that we spent two, three Sundays um, looking into. They, Paul was talking about how they all were almost were stoned in one city. How they had to be kicked out of a second city. How he was stoned in the third city. How they went to a fourth and then they w- retraced their tracks. They, they talked about the, 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 the island of Cyprus and what went on in that island. They, they rehearsed the whole matter. The many who were coming to Christ. And, and it's beautiful this view and being brought on their way by the church. It gives the idea that there was like an unbroken chain from from Antioch all the way to Jerusalem. They went from one city and then they arrived in a city and met believers. And they were in a local church there. And then from that city they went to another city and there were believers there. Maybe a little neighborhood and met, met more believers there. Then they went to Phoenicia. Then they went to Samaria. And, and and the church was just sending them like like they were batons and 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 they were just going from one assembly to the next, and when they arrived in Jerusalem, they told a report there so that 's the report, the heresy, the council, the report, and then our fourth um, phrase here it 's not a word, but verse five it was hard to find a a, a word that could summarize here i I don't know if this is helpful, but the word that comes to my mind, uh, uh, not a word but a phrase, is the old leaven. In verse 5, they are met with the old leaven. And and I'll explain why this phrase. So in verse 5, it says, "...but there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees, which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them, and to command them to keep the law of Moses." So that was the problem back home. Paul and Barnabas are sent to Jerusalem to discuss this very problem. And when they share about what God is doing to the, to the Gentiles, they, they probably shared, and we have a problem back home, because some from here came and, and brought this teaching that you need to be saved by believing in Christ and being circumcised. What, what are you all teaching here? They would have discussed that openly. And these Pharisees stood... And so from from the home church came this ideology kind of showing that yes, we, we are, some of us, believing that this is important. That these Gentiles who are believing, they must be commanded to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. Why am I calling this the old leaven? Well first thing to think is uh, we always have to see the good things even in some things that aren't so good. Just being positive. There's a note of joy here. There's there's a note of surprising joy. Did you notice what I read? Did you notice what you read in your Bible in verse 5? But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed. So Let us be joyful where joy is due. When we read in the Gospels we really only find two Pharisees that ever dare believe, and with much secrecy, and only at the end of Christ's life, there is something of a display of their faith, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. There's a scarcity of Pharisees who dare say they believe, and they are the sworn enemies of the Lord Jesus. And this is what I mean, a note of joy. There are Pharisees that can be said which believed. So the Lord is graciously saving those who had been the sworn enemies of Christ. But now here's the note of sadness. And this is where we need to be very careful in terms of where we came from. And if you're saved now, how are you doing? Because when I read what they say, even though I see that they believed... They stand up. Th- think of the whole situation. There's there's an antithesis here. There's a anticlimactic reality. You noticed how joyful everyone is when they hear what God is doing among the Gentiles. In verse 4 it says, When they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. There is a sense of all the beautiful news that they're giving. But then verse 5, these Pharisees rise up and they say, they need to be circumcised. And they need to obey the law. That's the old leaven. That's where they came from. Pharisees were legalists. They were people who thought, if I do good enough, I will go to heaven. And I have now done good enough and I will go to heaven. Thanks be unto me. Isn't that how Jesus portrayed the Pharisee who went into the temple to pray? And basically, he was saying, Thanks to me, thanks to my, my holiness, thanks to my faithfulness, I am well. And Jesus said, He's not going home justified. Because he was self-righteous. What we find here is the old leaven. And we find this dynamic. Beloved, it is hard. It is hard to mortify the old man. And you do well whenever you see it rising. To apply to the spirit to kill it. See, these Pharisees came from a background where you're saved by your works. Now that they're saved by the grace of God, they still think that you're saved by your works. They still want to put in their works there somewhere. Okay, we we do have to believe in Jesus and He did die on the cross and there is a massive amount of work of Christ. That is wonderful. But let us also do this. And again, what what happens if we do this? It's like in the introduction. Well, then it's thanks unto me that I am saved. I can do something to save myself. And that is legalism. That is a heresy. That is not salvation by grace, that is salvation by works. So that is the old leaven. And the warning there is let us be careful. Wherever we come from, whatever is our background, it might be worldliness, it might be religious. It might be materialistic. It might be very secular. And wherever we came from, there is a great power to affect our lives today. And we would do well. We would be humble to say, Lord, help me. Do not allow me to be who I used to be if it was unbiblical and if it did not please thee. And so it's because really of this old leaven in the hearts of these Pharisees that all of this problem is going on. So that's the problem posed. But now we go to our second point, the problem debated. So as soon as these Pharisees stand up and they they give their words, that of course begins the meeting, that that begins the debate. Um, Verse 6 says, "...and the apostles and elders came together for to consider of this matter." So verse 6 marks, as it were, the beginning of the council of, of Jerusalem. Um, verse 7 shows that there were, there were many, there was much conversation that came about before what's recorded. It says, when there had been much disputing. So we will see now, basically, Peter's speech. And then what will follow is Paul and Barnabas' speech. And then the third one is James' speech. There probably were many others, and probably these three spoke more than what is written. But of course we understand this would probably be a summary. Just the basics, these are the minutes, as it were, of that first Jerusalem council. Um, you know, you, you can go to the 1800s and find the minutes of a church and, or the minutes of a whole denomination. Those things are recorded, right, in books. And you can find out who is there. You can find out who made certain decisions. If there was a debate on a certain heresy, you can know the names of those who were in the wrong and the names of those who were biblical and in the right. There is this history. Churches. And, and this right here, beloved, is, is what we're looking at. It is the minutes of that first council of Jerusalem. And we start with Peter. Peter is the first one who speaks that is recorded here. So verse seven, let us read Peter's speech. He says, it says, Peter rose up and said unto them, men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Look at the last word of verse 7. It is believe. The last word of verse 9. It is Faith. Then verse 10, he says, Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe, it's the third time he uses the word faith, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved, even as they so, let us summarize Peter's speech. The main thing about Peter's speech is revelation. He, he, he appeals to the revelation of God, what God revealed to him, that he should go to the Gentiles, remember? And, and because he's speaking of his going to the Gentiles, and remember, he was up in that room, uh, up in the roof um, praying. He heard the knock at the door. He saw that these were men from the house of Cornelius. Cornelius had seen a vision and sent those men. Peter lived through that whole experience. Not everything he heard was God speaking to him, but it was an experience. He heard those men. He went and saw Cornelius, and he experienced the Holy Spirit come upon Cornelius. Remember, Peter was still, in a sense, preaching his sermon, and he had to stop because everybody was being saved. Everybody was receiving the Holy Spirit, even as he spoke. And he experienced all of that, And he, of course, had the revelation of God to him. Remember the dream there at the roof? He saw three times all those animals on that, um, like a a hammock kind of way, by four connections, all those animals that were there, and he was hearing the voice to, to eat of those animals. They were unclean animals that a Jew would never eat, but God at the end said, whatever I have cleansed, Do not consider unclean. What I have made clean. So notice those two words I'm using. Revelation and experience. Experience is a simple reality. He saw those things. He he saw those men. He saw Cornelius. Cornelius said about seeing an angel. And hearing the angel speak to him. And then he saw the experience of the Holy Spirit coming upon them. But he also saw the revelation of God to his heart. He had those two things. And then he he gave an accusation. In his speech, he took the freedom to say what he thinks this heresy is and he called it a tempting of God. He says, why are you tempting God? And, and, and the way to, to understand this is he's basically saying God has a decree, but you're, you are testing God in his decree. God has a goodness to save these people, but you're testing God in, in his wanting to be good to those people. Um, Matthew Henry, he, he says this in explaining how, how serious this accusation is. He says, it's, it's as if Peter was saying, you, you tempt him, God by calling that in question which he has already settled and determined by no less an indication than that of the gift of the Holy Ghost you do in effect ask did did he know what he did or was he in earnest in it or will he abide by his own act Will you try whether God who designed the ceremonial law for the people of the Jews only will now in its last ages bring the Gentiles too under the obligation of it to gratify you? Those tempt God who prescribe to Him and say that people cannot be saved but upon such and such terms which God never appointed as if the God of salvation must come into their measure. You see what Peter was doing. He was saying, you all are so proud to think you're wiser than God. God has not made clear this decree, but you have. And you put yourself, as it were, above God, saying this is what should be done, even though God has not revealed that to me in a personal and clear way. And they were pretending that they knew it. They had to say they were pretending. We've been reading through Acts, and we have not read God say, the Gentiles must be circumcised, and the Gentiles must obey the law. But these Pharisees saying that it's a must. So they are putting themselves in the place of God. Now in a summary of what Peter is saying, basically is this, salvation is by faith. This is the equation. He's using the revelation that God gave him, The experience of what he saw. And he's saying, God has taught us that the Gentiles out there in the world, they they don't need to become Jews first to become saved. They just need to believe. Just like us, we need to believe. It's not our circumcision that saves us, it's faith. And for them too. So that's the speech of Peter. And this led to the speech of Paul and Barnabas. In verse 12 it says, And all the multitude kept silence and gave audience. So they were thinking of what Peter said. They were digesting. Um, and then Paul and Barnabas declaring what miracles and wonders God has wrought among the Gentiles by them. That's that's the extent of, of their um what's recorded about Paul and Barnabas. So, of course, you can understand. They must have said many things. Maybe they used numbers of how many people they saw converted. Maybe they gave examples where we're not told the details. But this is is the summary that we can look at them. This is very important. They're not here speaking of revelation primarily, but they're speaking of God's providence. Or you could say God's work. That's their focus. Look, Paul and Barnabas declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought. It's not so much what God said, like what would be revelation or scripture, but what God did. So it's providence. But then... Paul and Barnabas were seeing all of this. They were seeing people healed. They were seeing people who who were going to stone them and and, and they saw God protecting them. Paul saw all those people stoning him and he understood that he walked up uh, up with life and, and that's what he experienced. So Peter, we say he spoke of revelation and experience. Paul and Barnabas spoke of providence and experience. And they let that be their message. Nothing in these works of providence, God spoke of circumcision and obeying the law. And they were all being saved. And we were being protected. So that's their speech. And then comes James's speech in verse 13. That's, that's the longest speech. So let me let me start the record of James to have it fresh in our minds. Verse 13. And after they had held their peace. So again, they're quiet. They're digesting what... Peter said, what Paul and Barnabas said. Then James answered saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. It's interesting in synodical meetings until this day, this is how pastors address other groups of pastors. When we have visiting men from other denominations, often they say men and brethren. And this is where they get it from. This, it's a loving, respectful way to speak to one another. And he says, hearken unto me. Simeon, and that's Peter, hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them the people for his name. So he's basically saying, I agree with what Peter said. And to this agree the words of the prophets as it is written. Now here, boys and girls, you know what James is doing? He's going to the Bible. After this, and this is where he recites the Bible, he recites Amos 9, verse 11 and 12. After this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David which has fallen down. And I will build again the ruins thereof. And I will set it up that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles. See Amos had a verse that said that the Gentiles would come. Upon whom my name is called saith the Lord who doeth all these things. And then verse 18. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning Of the world. So he's saying God knew that what we're hearing from Paul and Barnabas, God revealed in his word a long time ago. And now we're seeing it come to fruition. We're seeing fulfilled the promise. And and when he recites Amos, it's possible that he recited others. There are other passages. I want to read a few of them. You need to understand that the Jewish person knew that God had promised... that at a certain time... the Gentile world would come in... and not a single one of those verses... demands that they would need to be circumcised... and obey the law. And so... what's a summary of what James is doing? Um, Again, Peter... used revelation and experience. Paul and Barnabas... used providence and experience. And what James does is he uses a scripture and experience. And it's a beautiful thing that's happening here because James, it, it seems to be that James never had a vision specifically to him that could be his experience. He, 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 he wasn't there in Antioch and he wasn't in the other places where he could have said that he saw the providence and the work of God in the same way that Paul and Barnabas could say it. But that doesn't mean that James lacks in any way. And if he did, all of us would lack James used what you and I can use. He used the Bible. That is precisely what he did. He went to the Bible. He went to Scripture and experience. Because he said, I heard what Peter said. I I, I heard about what happened to Cornelius. That that was my experience. So I'll go back to, to those three speeches at our application in a little bit. But... Let me just bring a few verses that show how the, New Te- the Old Testament was so clear that this was going to happen at some point. Um, especially two passages, is, two books, Zechariah and then Isaiah. Let me read Zechariah 2 verse 11. It says, And many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day. And shall be my people, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto thee. And beloved, the exciting thing about these verses, you need to understand how personal this is to you. This th- these are the promises in the Old Testament that you and I would be part of the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It wouldn't be just Jews, it would be Gentiles, and most of us are mainly Gentiles. Zechariah 8.22 Yea, many people and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. And then a longer passage in Isaiah chapter 2 beginning in verse 2 And it shall come to pass in the last day that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established and in the top of the mountains and he shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it all nations shall flow into it and there are more passages that I could read but this is a summary then of the problem being debated and now let's go to our last point the the solution being offered as soon as James gives his his thoughts in terms of 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 his His mind and what he's thinking. He goes to scripture. He quotes scripture, but then in verse nineteen, that's that's where the solution begins to be offered. And notice the the way it happens is this: he he can't as a single man just say this is what we'll do, but he proposes something. Even this, it's just so amazing how what I read here is so much the flow of many church meetings. Someone basically James is making a motion, and this motion will be debated. And once they're finalized, they will vote on that motion and decide, yes, that's how we want it to be worded. And they will write a letter. That's That's the continuation. Well, let us hear the motion that James makes in verse 19. Wherefore, my sentence is that we trouble not them, which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them, number one, That they abstain from pollutions of idols. So, to abstain from idolatry. Number two, and from fornication, to abstain from immorality. And from things strangled and from blood. We can put those together. That's in essence saying abstain from blood. An animal that is strangled, the whole problem there is the blood is inside the animal. And blood in a cup, well, that is blood. It's basically saying, let us teach the Gentiles to have no direct dealings with blood as a food element. Let us put that in the letter. That, that's, that's what I, that is my sentence. That is what I propose. So, so there are two major things. The first is, let us not trouble them. You need to understand, in essence, what he's saying. What was the problem? The problem was, in verse 1, except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. And then when the Pharisees stood up there in Jerusalem, it was a little more elaborate. It says that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now, we're not given details like what parts of the law, everything. Everything. Were, were they literally supposed to keep to the minutia of what to eat or not to eat? Remember so many details that you can't eat a kid in mother's milk. Is that part of what you're proposing? And that they can't eat pig's meat? And, and, and that you can't touch an animal if it died or else you're unclean for so many days? And how are you going to make a Christian um, be cleansed if we don't even do sacrifices anymore? What do you mean about all these things? And James was saying, let us not trouble them about any of those things. So that first phrase, let us not trouble the Gentiles, he was basically saying, forget about circumcision, forget about the ceremonial law. That that has nothing to do now in terms of salvation. See, James understood that even the Ten Commandments was not the basis by which you and I are to be saved. He's not saying just make sure they obey the Ten Commandments in order to be saved. See, James isn't saying that either. Because it is not by the Ten Commandments that you and I are saved. The Ten Commandments are there to help us understand, I cannot save myself. I need a risen Savior who died as a sin offering so that my sins are forgiven and his righteousness is given to me and now in his presence I'm accepted and I look at that law and say Lord how I love thy law it is my meditation day and night and help me give me strength to live it but I'm so thankful that it's not based on my keeping it that I'm alive or saved because I would never be saved then so James is basically saying don't trouble them Salvation is not by merit. It is not by works. And three things that would be good for them to keep. Abstain from idolatry. Abstain from immorality. Abstain from blood. Now, something very simple we can say about each one of these. The first two, they are a given. It is not just saying, um, for a while, let's keep this. No, this is forever. Forever. There is no time in a Christian's life that you mature where idolatry and immorality may have a place. No, the first two are sinful um, in, in and of themselves. God's word is clear about this in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. That we are to, to be pure, that we are to have only one God and not idols. And that we are to be holy unto the Lord and not committing fornication and immorality of any kind and any sort. Paul was very clear about this. Never God's word is saying, so that you may be saved. It's never in that category, but it's saying, if you are saved, this is how you will live. So the first two are are clear elements that are sinful in and of themselves. But something very important about the third one, the second was regarding a law that God gave. If, If you stop to consider, it's interesting that he went to that one. And, and, and just suggested, gave this recommendation that they would put in the letter, simply this, don't deal with blood in terms of food, in terms of eating it. Why would he have given this? You know where this commandment came? It didn't come in the days of the Ten Commandments with Moses. It came in the days of the flood when there was really in this world only one family alive. It was in a sense like a universal law that God was giving to instill in the heart of His people the sacredness of life. It was to Noah that God said this in Genesis 9-4, But flesh with the life thereof, He called it, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. And see, with this command having been given to Noah, by the time the Jewish people were well established, of all those laws and precepts, if there was something that would make them shiver in their hearts is to see a person misleading blood and making use of it as food. Because to them, that was a direct connection with life and the sanctity of life. And so, it's like James is saying there has to be at least this or else our fellowship with the Gentile world will be truly tenuous many commentators agree that, that in essence this, this is not a sin in of itself if there are peoples in the world there, there are recipes there where blood is to be added and, and some cultures do add it we should not look at that and say that is a sin Matthew Henry says this. He he always helps in understanding these details. He says, Though not evil in themselves, this law, as the other two, nor designed to be always abstained from, as those were, had been forbidden by the precepts of of Noah, Genesis 9-4, before even the giving of the law of Moses. And the Jews had a great dislike to them, the issues of blood and animals strangled because of the blood, and to all those that took a liberty to use them. And therefore, to avoid giving offense, let the Gentile converts abridge themselves of their liberty therein. Thus, we must become all things to all men. Then he adds this he says, We must therefore give them time, the Gentiles, we must meet them halfway. The Gentiles, in a sense, giving time to the Jews. They must be born with a while and brought on gradually, and we must comply with them as far as we can without betraying our gospel liberty. Thus does this apostle show the spirit of a moderator, being careful to give no offense either to Jew or Gentile, and contriving as much as may be to please both sides and provoke neither. So you can imagine, those Pharisees were probably fuming by now because no one's taking their side. But they're listening. Okay, Peter spoke of of revelation and experience. Paul spoke of God's providence and experience. James is speaking about the word and experience. Maybe those Pharisees are starting to think, yeah, maybe our position isn't very strong. It won't hold. But then they hear James saying, Let's put in the letter not to deal with blood. And you can see a sigh of relief. Do you hear it? Those Pharisees thinking, huh, something in our way. Something in our direction. Something so sacred, we won't have to bear, see, an essence of a sacrilege in this area. But you know what's interesting is that later as Paul is writing to the churches, to Corinth especially, he starts saying that if you thank the Lord for your food, you can eat it. You can eat anything. So through time, even this was in essence abrogated. But the principle is this. If you ever become a missionary, imagine if you're a missionary among Jewish people. This might be something very wise to keep or else no Jewish person will ever talk to you if they know that you eat strangled animals. And so basically James is giving a principle of, of, of love inside this letter with the principle of liberty, like overarching everything. So let me end with, with three applications. There, there are four. Four basic applications in, the, in this whole consideration. The first one is this. Think, beloved, who, who is limiting the activity of the church? Because, boys and girls, the last few Sundays I've been talking about Paul. In Lystra, Paul in Derby, Paul in Iconium. And people were hearing the gospel. People were repenting and believing. Yes, there were the persecutions, but that led them to another city. What would they do there? They would preach the gospel. More people were coming to Christ. And it's what's been giving joy to the church to say the Gentiles are believing. But now I get to chapter 15 and I can't talk about that. I have to talk about the problem they had to solve, the problem they had to debate. Who is limiting the activity of the church? For a whole chapter, for a whole sermon, I can't talk about people being converted and more people coming to the kingdom because the church has to sit down and discuss an inside problem. This this is something to bring a warning to our hearts, beloved. Let Let us not be like that. There may be, of course, a need to debate. But it's sad that every time we debate, we're not evangelizing and we're not winning the world for Christ. And sometimes, in the nature of our debates and the fights that there may be in synodical meetings, and you hear of churches that even go in the news of what they're doing about buildings, and usually finances are, are so often the matter, and then the world looks at that and says, They just fight with themselves. Why would we join them? They look like us. So, notice this this is not persecution that is limiting the spread of the gospel. This is not violence to the church where where men and women are are now having to hide and maybe go into exile and scared to talk about the faith because they might be put into prison. It's, It's not the Roman Empire that is challenging the growth of the church due to its restrictions and impositions or taxations. This is the church slowing down the spread of the gospel. This is believers limiting the spread of the word. Maybe some unbelievers mixed in who aren't true believers. But when it spoke of those Pharisees, it says, which believed? Later, Paul, when he speaks to the Galatians, he speaks some brothers who entered us unawares. But then it said that they're not really brothers. False brothers, false believers. So in the midst of these, there were some who weren't true believers. But it is so sad that it is, in a sense, professing believers, we could say that, who are limiting the spread of the word. This is men. And, and when I say men, I'm not speaking generically, meaning men and women. Maybe there were some wives of these Pharisees who, who fueled them, but these are the leaders of the church, and they're men. So these men who are in the church professing believers are limiting the work of the of the spread of the gospel. And look at the irony here. Jesus said, to start in Jerusalem, go to Samaria and the ends of the world. And now, Paul had been in the ends of the world, but he gets to Antioch, where he could go back to the ends of the world, which is desperately needed. Beloved, put it into this paradigm. There are people dying in the ends of the world that Paul was in, and they were dying without Christ. But he arrives in Antioch, and instead of going back to the ends of the world, he has to go back to Jerusalem. What, what is he doing back in Jerusalem? Jesus said to start in Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the world. But see, there's a problem in the church, and he needs to go back to Jerusalem. And it's good that he's sharing what's happening. He's, he's giving more reports. But we need to realize this, beloved. Is are there things you and I are doing in the life of the church while the watching world is out there in darkness and we don't have time to go there because we are dealing with the issues of our church? And it's not the world saying, don't go to China, don't go to Japan, you cannot go to Iraq. No, we don't have time to go because there are things to solve in the church. Beloved, I'm not even saying this. I'm thankful that I can preach this without feeling that I'm stepping in anybody's toes in a sense because I don't think there's any issue right now that we're spending time like that. But you know what I mean. This is like a warning. Let us not allow this to happen. But when we think of our meetings even with the HRC and we meet as pastors, there are issues. Again, by necessity, we need to deal and talk about issues. But The thing that should burn in our hearts is, wait, there is a dying world. Are we spending more time with our petty problems while there is this dying world out there? So who is limiting the activity of the church? At this point, it's the church. And so let this be a warning to us. Let us pray that we would not enter into this kind of of lack of balance If there are issues and if there are false teachings, of course we need to deal with it. But may the Lord silence the false teachers before we spend too much time in it so that we can go and teach the true teachings to those who need it. And secondly, the second thing is to realize the importance of the Word of God. Beloved, don't mind it that we don't have revelation. Don't mind it that we don't have the providence of God in the same way that Paul and Barnabas saw about healing of people like right there before them. James used the Word word, and at his end of conclusion, the matter was settled and and it's exactly what we have. We have the Word of God. Full of revelation, full of providence, the the, the works, the, the and whenever if everybody tells you, well, in your works there's no healing, there's no one like like there, there's no one who resurrects from the dead, you say, Yes, there is, because we preach the Bible and it's full of those examples in it. Oh, but those happened many years ago. Yes, and they were true. And that's all that matters. And if God wants to resurrect and heal someone, he can still do that. But I have the word. Now notice this one thing. Paul, Peter, he had revelation in his experience. Paul had providence in his experience. James had the word in his experience. All three of them had experience. But none of them had experience without something of the word. Something of the word of God, of his revelation. The problem in many, many Christian um, domains is that they put all the focus on experience and it can be even like this somebody says well God said this to me and, and they might say well that is the word of God but, but to you not, not, not what's right here in his word how do you know that was God speaking to you and not just your conscience God doesn't speak that way anymore like in a specific direct way he speaks through his word and we have that we have it right here so, experience is important in so much as is it is attached and it matches, as it were, is in harmony with the Word. And, and this was one of the big things that Jonathan Edwards in the 1700s explained to to show what was good revival and what was false revival if if there were many experiences but detached from the word you weren't supposed to follow those things but if there were experiences like like feeling the closeness of God in your heart and yet what you were wanting was the word and it was connected to a sermon then he would say those experiences are legitimate and we should not distrust them so the word is important it is critical that's a second point of application the third is it's connected to this since the word is important essential not just important it is the basis of everything the third principle is the importance of the dependence of God that we would depend on God that we would acknowledge that we can't make these decisions alone if there's if there's an error if there's an heresy Let us us depend on the Lord to help us solve this error, to help us explain. This is how He guides us. It's through His Word. Let us depend on Him. And and right here, I want to bring the principle of prayer. Um, there, There are two ways that I can show my dependence on the Lord is that I will read the Word of the Lord, but I will also speak to the Lord, and I will pray. You'll remember last Lord's Day, we, we had that little summary of prayer. And how it, it is everywhere in the pages of Acts. And now we, we start seeing why prayer is so important. See, these, these false teachers came and, and if, if their false teaching is followed, there will be people who, who have an anti-gospel. They're not being saved, they're being condemned. And so the church needs prayer. So that when an error comes like this, look at the beauty of, of the solution. Um, and, and I won't have time to go in details in what follows, but you saw, I read, the Antioch believers received it, and they were full of joy. And Paul will go with these letters everywhere through Cilicia and Pamphylia, and all those places that he went before, showing, look, if you ever hear that you need circumcision in the law to be saved, no, we, we prayed about this, we discussed this, and we realized that no, this is not essential. But these three things... Keep these three things. And they would teach on him and explain why blood was important. And the Christians who were Gentiles would say, you know, okay, I'll I'll just stop drinking blood. Because I realize how how sensitive this is for the Jews. If if that's that serious. And Paul would explain all, all, all of what this means. He would probably even make it very clear. This doesn't mean that it's through abstaining from the blood that you're not saved. That you're saved. But these are just matters to bring peace among us. Do you understand this? And and there would be this joy in the church. In our dependence on God, there are these three things. I just want, at the sermon beginning, I said there are three principles here. And I've been repeating them. You want to know God's will, young person. You want to know if you go to this job or that, if you marry this person or another. God's word. Is providence and a multitude of counsel. This is what we find in this text. The word, we saw how, how foundational it is. Even when we speak of Peter went through the revelation of God to him, that's the word of God to him. And it's even written in scripture. So it's scripture. And then James brought scripture to bear. But then we spoke of providence when i say providence is this if you if you think of this job but then you realize that it's in a city where there's absolutely a dearth of spiritual no churches there within 4 hours that in god providence is in essence him saying that's not the best place providence and then a multitude of counsel this is what they do they they listen to one another to the prophets to the elders so the importance of the word the sadness of who was limiting the church, the importance of the dependence on God, and fourthly and lastly, this text is teaching us, of course, the supremacy of Christ. In all that we've been reading, let us always remember this. Jesus is the one at work. He went to the Father, but remember, he prayed the Father to send the Spirit. So the Spirit is working here in the church, and we could say this is Christ through the Spirit in the church. He is the one saving souls. He is the one healing people, doing those miracles. He's the one adding people daily such as should be saved. He's the one protecting Paul so that that stoning wouldn't take his life once and for all. He's the one who's guiding them what city to go, where to avoid, now to come back. He's the one who's giving them wisdom to make these decisions so that God's Word will be clear of error and fault And what is the error? That we don't need Jesus only. And Jesus is bringing the truth saying, I am the only Savior. No one comes to the Father but by me. And we don't see the Lord Jesus walking in the pages of Acts. But if we stop to think, it's like we're seeing him all the time. We're seeing him in Paul's life who's willing to die to preach the gospel. And we seeing him in Peter and John as they say to the lame man, in the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. Boys and girls, do you sometimes feel like I'll say the name of Jesus as if he's right there with the apostles? I get this feeling sometimes as I'm reading through Acts that we will turn the page and we will see Jesus there with them. Because he is there with them. He said to go And teach all peoples everywhere. The things that I have taught you. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he said, And lo, I will be with you always. So Jesus is with Peter when he speaks. With Paul and Barnabas when they speak. And when they speak, they're speaking of what Jesus did. And when James speak, Jesus is with James. And James speaks... Of what the Lord Jesus spoke. Because when he speaks the word. It's what Christ inspired Amos to write down. Christ and the supremacy of Christ. And this is what that day was preserved. That you are not saved by your works. You are saved by Christ. And him alone. And I pray that in your heart. That's how you understand the gospel. Not your faithfulness, as important as that is. Not your obedience. Not your holiness. Not your abiding by one principle or another, but Christ. And Him crucified. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious, glorious God, we thank Thee, Lord, that even as this problem entered, this false teaching... Lord, and in the history of Thy church, there have been so many such false teachings. And we know, Lord, that in the spiritual realm, there is even Satan behind the false teachers, promoting this division from within the church. And We pray, Lord, that Thou would continue to protect Thy church through the ages we see, Lord, churches that have even fallen because they have embraced false teachings and they have lost their light. As the churches in a Revelation were warned that would happen, Lord, we pray that thou would never allow that to happen among us and that we would keep to these principles, Lord, thy word and thy providence and that we would keep safe to the multitude of counsel. Give wisdom, Lord, to each and every one of us what are issues that are important enough to be brought um, to the attention of the leaders And, and we as congregations give us wisdom Lord to know what we should bring to synodical meetings to be discussed there among brethren we know Lord that matters must be dealt with but give us Lord the wisdom to do so and that we would always keep in mind that there is there is a world that needs to be reached even our neighborhoods and help us Lord to have that heart To reach them for Christ. And we pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.